welcome to another inspirational message from Northwest Church. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information on what your next step may be, please visit our website at northwestchurch.com.au. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Bron, and uh, um, I'm the conference host, but it seems like every year I do less and less to be that because of just a phenomenal team of people who keep stepping up and rising up and, and, and taking charge and, and they're just amazing. So I just really honour all the team here tonight. Yeah, let's give them a hand. <laughs> Speaking of Amish communities in New Zealand, you would think that I was in an Amish community of one recently. A couple of months ago, I was having a conversation with my daughter, Bella. She was 15 at the time. And uh, we were discussing um, a movie that we'd just seen. It was based on true life events, I'm pretty sure. It was where a woman in the Air Force, her commanding officer was actually originally from outer space and she'd come and um, had brought with her an infinity stone and was trying to convert the energy of the infinity stone into a light speed machine, but an explosion was caused and Carol Danvers absorbed the force of that explosion and, uh, and then became practically an immortal being. I know we've all been there, right? Like... Old story, and uh, and she was she was the Carol Danvers um, became like this powerful being, and uh, it was actually pretty epic. Captain Marvel, um, our family's into Marvel movies, and so yes, Amen. What even is DC? And um, and so Bella and I were talking about it, and Bella said, "Mum, I was actually worried that it was going to be too feminist." I said. <laughs> What do, you, what do you mean too feminist, darling? And she said, um, well, you know, like just over the top. My friends were worried as well. We were all worried it was going to be too feminist. And I said, can you explain to me, please, how you can be too feminist? And, uh, and she said, mum, like, you know, the whole angry, you know, we hate men thing. I said, darling, that is not what a feminist is. And she said, yeah, it is, mum. That's what our generation thinks it is. I said, right, well, I'm a feminist and your father's a feminist now. And... <laughs> And that is not what a feminist is. And she said, it is, Mum. To our generation, that's what it is. We don't like feminism. We think it's over the top. We think it's too full on. And I said, Bella, that is not what a feminist is. No, I stayed super calm because I'm not passionate at all about this stuff. I just stayed calm. I was just like, oh, sweetie. That is not what a feminist is. And she said, no, Mum, it is. That's what our generation sees it as. Fortunately, there was another person in the car, so I had a tiebreaker. So I turned to the person and said, hey, Siri, define feminism. <laughs> and... Siri said, feminism is the giving of equal opportunity, value and right to both male and female. I was like, boom, Bella! <laughs> Siri's spoken! And, um, and she was like, calm down, Mum. Like, this is indicative and associated with the militant, usurping, angry uprising to which we associate the people. Your attitude right now! She didn't say that, but that would have been epic if she had it. That would have been brilliant. And so I changed the title of my talk tonight from Jesus is a Feminist, knowing that it has negative connotations now, thank you, Bella, to God's forever plan. God's forever plan. You know, in that moment I had the moment that we all dread, where you realise that you're completely culturally irrelevant to your teenager. <laughs> but also the moment was a moment where I thought, oh no, no God, don't let my daughter's generation the one who I'm believing for. Don't let her generation be the generation that despises what the generations before have done for her. Now, truth be told, 
I don't really know what the generations before have done for me. I'm just living my life right now how it is. I don't, I, I, this is the whole thing. I didn't understand the whole angry thing that she was talking about. I just looked up the definition of feminism a couple of years ago and went, oh, we're all that. <laughs> I didn't realise all the negative associations, but I do know that God had a forever plan and has a forever plan for men and women. And so God's forever plan, lost, found and occupy. And tonight we're going we're gonna to look at creation, commission, and the curse. We're going to look at the cost, the cup, and the crush. We're going to look at permission granted and a position of paradox. You're like, how long are we staying here for? (laughs) I'll have you out of here with an ice cream before you know it. And so, let me tell you, at the start... There were endless possibilities. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and this creative energy was flowing and there were endless possibilities of what God might do on the earth. He had a plan in mind. And so he started creating. First of all, he created man. Oh, he created everything else. And then he created man. And then he just kept creating and creating all sorts of animals from the cute to the bizarre to the entitled. And then they all are like, like how imaginative do you have to be to create the variety of even what is there and yet we know there is so much more so much going on endless possibilities and yet in Genesis it says about the man but still there was no helper for him you know there's this Elohist uh, version of events and then the Yahwehist version of events the Elohist is this almighty powerful kind of poetic thing and then the Yahwehist is the down in the dirt version of events so the Elohist says, let us make humans in our image. So God created humans in his own image. In the image of God, in the image of God, what? He created them. Male and female, he created them. And then it says that when she was brought to Adam and shown to him after his deep sleep, at last, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man, inferring that the same dignity, value, honor, and worth that was ascribed to him would be ascribed to her also. He's like, this girl is like me. We are in this together. And so they were. Because then God gave them something, a commission that neither of them could fulfill on their own. And when God speaks at them side by side, it says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, reign over creation. He gives them a command. He gives them a commission as they stand by side by side. He says, this is your helper. The, Greek, uh, the Hebrew is ezekinegdo, which means that um, it's used 20 times in the Old Testament apart from this. 17 times it's referring to God, the helper of Israel, the one who comes alongside, the one who fights for, the one who fights with and rescues. That is the helper, same word that is used. And then the other three times it's referring to a military ally, same thing, comes alongside, fights for, fights with, gets in, down in the dirt and goes for it with. Co-vice regents, he looks at the men and women and say, be fruitful and multiply and reign together. Oh, I just love, I love it. I love the picture of it. At the start, it was stunning beyond belief. At the start, it was stunning beyond belief. And then, unfortunately, that eternal question gets asked for the very first time. Is God withholding from us? As God has said, eat from any tree in the garden, except for this one. 
And then all of a sudden, a tempter comes and is able to say to Eve, did he really say? And the question began, did, is God holding out on me? Is God withholding something from me? And tragedy occurs. One by tragic trickery, one by tragic choice. The man and the woman are plunged into disobedience to the command that they were given. All of a sudden, what was put there is now lost. And it is ruined beyond comprehension, this plan that God had for his beautiful creation. There's a curse that comes. If we go into the next slide, Lockie. Ruined beyond comprehension, and then one more. The curse that is given as a consequence for the actions that they undertook. I'll read it. I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, it says, and in pain you will give birth. Anyone experience? Okay. And though you will have desire for your husband, he will rule over you. How, what a departure from the co-vice regency that he proclaimed. And then he says to the man, he turns to our co-vice regent and says, all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it, from the earth. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of it by the sweat of your brow. And anyone who's ever had a son or a brother or a father who just gets so frustrated by work, but at the same time is so addicted to it, you see the evidence of this curse in action for them as well. But not only that, this co-vice regency now has a power dynamic whereby the woman desires the man, but he will rule over her. And we see this power dynamic play out in domestic violence, in the proliferation of pornography across our earth, where that um, easy gratification in a power dynamic is able to be played out without any kind of consequence for the person who's watching, where the sex slave trade is, is rampant across our earth, where prostitution and rape are rampant across our earth. This is all as predicted from the curse. Such loss. And as we read through the scriptures, we see a litany of powerlessness across the women that previously were these co-vice regions standing side by side with a command to be fruitful and multiply. And now it's lost. What can be done? Well, there was a plan already in motion. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 and 10 says this, For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. Hang on, let's just stop there. For God saved us, amen, called us as well, hallelujah, to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time, to show us his grace through Jesus Christ. Now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Saviour. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. Let me read it from the Passion Translation. He gave us resurrection life and drew us to himself by his calling on our lives. And it wasn't because of any good we have done, but by his divine pleasure and marvelous grace that confirmed our union with the anointed Jesus even before time began. So even before the curse was pronounced, grace was in motion and a plan was set in place for this curse to be reversed. The truth is now being unveiled by the revelation of the anointed Jesus, our life giver, who has dismantled death, obliterating all its effects on our lives and has manifested his immortal life in us by the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. Now, that's incredible. Before time began, before the curse was given, 
But sometimes we can just brush over that, particularly if you're a churchgoer, have communion, take the bread, drink the cup, done that, great. We don't always recognise the cost. And cost is a funny thing because cost is determinative of how much value we place on something. We had this, we've got this friend, got this amazing friend. And he came at just the right time for our church. We were small and, and, and we loved people like crazy, but we were a mess. <laughs> we didn't know anything about structures or systems or anything like that. And he came along at just the right time and helped us put things in place and put government structures in place, get a board together, all that kind of thing. He was just amazing. And, and someone like that with a brain like that, you kind of think that they're, you know, they're very structured and very um, together and linear and things like that. But what you wouldn't expect about this man, those people are often very careful as well, read stingy, but not him. He was the most generous man that you could ever come across. If he believed in a person or something that they were doing, he would give anything to it. And he would come around to our house and he would see that we were trying to raise kids and, and the church couldn't afford to pay dad. So he was working, um, cleaning a factory at night time and I was um, teaching scripture at the high school across the road. And, and so we were raising kids and pastoring a church and working and everything was just a bit crazy. And so he'd come around home and he'd see my stuff everywhere, like, okay, literally everything was everywhere, but, but particularly my work stuff everywhere. And he said, Bron, how would you feel if you had a desk that you could open and then pack up at the end of the day and close and no one could see it? I said, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Next day, rocks around with this beautiful big desk that I still have that you can open and close. And, uh, and it was just phenomenal. That's the kind of guy that he is. And so later on, um, many years later, Daz had always wanted a Chesterfield lounge, uh, you know, like the single-seaters, and, and um, we'd gotten our tax check, and it was about to be Christmas, so as a surprise, I bought him this Chesterfield single-seater, and he was so excited. It was like a dream come true. He's an interior designer and a manly man as well, and, and so he sat down in this chair, and he just loved it, and we took it um, to church for Christmas for Santa to sit in, uh, not the real Santa, um, and, and so he would sit in this chair because it was so beautiful and and our friend remarked on it he said wow what a great chair and after Santa had done his thing our friend sat in the chair and went oh this is a fantastic chair and Daz uh, took me aside and said Bron can we give him the chair and I was like oh it's your chair Daz you can do whatever you like with it and he said the chair's yours and so our friend got to take the chair home he said Daz said to me he does so much for everybody else I want to do something for him. And so he gave him the Chesterfield. You know how many times I've just wanted to just mention, do you know how much that thing costs? <laughs> because I want our friend to get the full sacrifice, like the, the, the realisation of the sacrifice that it was. I want to tell him, do you know how happy Daz used to look when he'd go and sit inside the chair and he'd have his Bible because the arm was wide enough to sit the Bible on there? Do you know, do you know, like it, it, that, that thing, it was a cost and I hope you love it as much as we do. I hope you value it. I hope you value the price that we paid for that to be given to you. Fortunately, a few years later, burnt my house down, got an insurance payout, got a three-seater Chesterfield, whatever. God works in mysterious ways. You win some, you lose some. And, uh, you know, cost is proportionate to value. And our Jesus, let me read to you, he was despised and rejected. I know that many of you know this, but we always need to come back to Jesus. 
And we always need to have a fresh picture in our minds of just what it cost him to give us our salvation, to give us relationship with him, that simply means, to give us eternal life. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all those sins. Ladies, today... There is a sound of our redemption. Sound of our redemption. The cost was great to our Saviour. It wasn't just a decision that he made. It cost him everything. And he begged his father in the garden... He said, Father, three times, face down on the ground, if it's possible, can you let this cup pass from me? And every time he came back with, yet, not my will, but yours be done. It cost him everything. And yet, what he gained was sometime, somehow so much more than we often realise. We're saved from our sins. If you don't know that here tonight, it is possible for you to have a clear conscience because of what Jesus has done. That separation that you feel between you and God, it is possible to feel like you are his daughter here tonight because of what Jesus has done. It's simply saying yes to him. Yes, Jesus, I've gone my own way, but now I turn and I follow you your way. And then that's it. You then are his daughter as you follow him. It cost him everything. But he won for us so much more than what we realise. You see, that curse that was handed down, it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for wrongdoing. For it is written in the Scriptures, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He took our sins, but he redeemed the curse also. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, they, the man and the woman were not the only ones that were cursed that day. The tempter was cursed as well. And it says, because you have done this, you are cursed. And I will cause hostility between you and the women, woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. When he went to the cross, 
when it cost him everything, when he drank of the cup, he crushed the serpent's head under his heel. Nice try, Satan. You bit my heel. Ouch. Boom. And crushed his head. He, in, in that moment, he crushed the curse that had been handed down. And in that moment, we were found and we were redeemed beyond all possibility. It was lost at the start, but then it was found and redeemed beyond possibility. It didn't stop there. It didn't stop just with Jesus' life because when the church was born, the Spirit was poured out. And it says in Acts, when everyone's just speaking other languages that they'd never learnt, men and women side by side, prattling off in weird languages, dialects. And people are like, you don't know that dialect? How do you know that dialect? That's my dialect. That's from 2,000 kilometres away. Why are you speaking that dialect? And yet everyone was speaking in these different languages and everybody was understanding what was happening and, and they said, what's going on? And Peter gave a sermon. He said, this is just what was talked about in Joel, people, where it says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Men and women standing side by side, speaking out the truth of God. It's time, ladies. It's reiterated in the letters from Paul where he says, There is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When the Spirit is poured out, things get messy. When the Spirit is poured out, men, women begin to speak up for the truth of God. Every tribe, every tongue, every race joined together, educated, uneducated, young, old, and began to speak the truth of God, and it is messy. And then what happens is we get a bit of order in the place and then we get a bit of institution in the place and then we get a bit of hierarchy in the place and things go back the way of culture. But God, you know that that's how history records it time and time again in the church. His spirit is poured out, things get messy, things get cleaned up and it goes back to the way it was. Spirit pours out, things get messy, disruptive, everything goes on and then it goes back into order. History records that to be the case. But it's supposed to be a glorious mess. It's supposed to be a restoration of what he had planned in the first place. You might say, well, that's not representative of anything I see and I'm actually not sure what you're talking about by this. What exactly are you meaning? Um, well, Jesus has done his part. That's all I'm saying. And we must do ours. We must occupy because permission has been granted. For us to say, what are you, what are you saying? Like, are you, are you, what are you saying? Who's in charge? Wrong question. It's the wrong question. Who can I serve is the right question. Because when his spirit gets poured out, everyone should respond with service. Permission is granted for us to serve alongside each other and to serve each other as well. Service is the goal because permission has been granted. There's this story in the Bible of two sisters and a brother. They get mentioned a couple of times. And uh, they're friends of Jesus, which is a pretty cool way to be known. And one of them dies, but it's okay because he comes back to life. And um, while he's dead, 
or while he's sick actually, one of the sisters who seems to be very emotive and adoring, she appeals to Jesus' emotions and says, Jesus, the one who you love is sick. And so he eventually gets back, but he doesn't make it in time. And then the other sister, who's like a boss lady, she's like, she's like a doer. She's like, I get things done around here. She comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you had been here, he'd still be alive. Okay. And then she says, but nonetheless, God can do anything. What are you going to do, Jesus? <laughs> because I just said God can do that. And then she follows it up with this statement. Because you are Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Stop. Wait a minute. Didn't Peter say that? Yes, Peter did say that. Martha also said it. Peter's the one famous for saying it, but Martha also says it here. Martha says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so Jesus, oh, then Mary comes out, throws herself at his feet. <laughs> if he had been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus is like, yep, okay, that's cool. I'm about to do something. Can you please? Um, no, he loved Mary so much. He absolutely adored her. And so he calls Lazarus out. Another time, Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. Martha's cooking because she's a doer, because she gets us done. That's what she does. And then Mary is, is, comes into the room with, a, with an alabaster box and, and cracks the nard. <laughs> Sorry, I just like that. Cracks the nard. And, um, yeah. and, uh, and she cracks it and the whole house is filled with the perfume. And, and, and it's just beautiful and lovely. And, 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 and people are offended because they're stingy. And other people are offended because of the whole way it's gone down. But Mary is just adoring and expressive in her worship of Jesus. Another time, they're there. And uh, Mary, it says that Jesus went to Martha's house. Jesus went and visited lots of homes in his time in the New Testament. Zacchaeus's house, he went to Simon's house, he went to someone else's house. And, and, but this is the first time it's mentioned that he went to a woman's house. Martha is a boss lady. She, like, there's a, she has a brother, but it doesn't say he went to Lazarus's house, he went to Martha's house. She is upsetting the status quo. She is outside the precedent. And then she's there in the house cooking again because she gets stuff done. That's what she does. And Mar Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And sometimes we can get this picture of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus like this. <sighs> I used all my perfume, but if I had any more, I'd give it to you, Jesus. And just like this, like, like adoring little, you know, like, what is it, puss in boots? Like, and, and we see Mary like that. Hang on. Only to our culture, only in our day. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. To be sitting at the rabbi's feet was to be sitting in the place of learning. She's there as a woman. This is unprecedented for a woman to be sitting at the rabbi's feet, yet here she is in the place of learning and Jesus is fine with it. What happens though is that Martha says, Jesus, these pies ain't going to cook themselves. <laughs> that came from nowhere. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> crack myself up. <laughs> so, and, and so, and Mary says, um, but Jesus says, Martha, she's, she's doing the better thing here. She's sitting and learning. Now, Martha, like I said, is a boss lady. She's made a messianic proclamation. She is the goods. She owns a house. And she, that's not mentioned anywhere else in the times. And yet... When her sister upsets the status quo as well, and it's unprecedented as well, she wants to withdraw permission from that because it doesn't look like the kind of way she's upsetting the status quo. And she's not okay with something different going on over there. It's kind of like what Kelly Rowland said on The Voice. 
when she wanted to take Beck through, but she wanted to take Denzel through as well. It was just like this crazy, I feel it. Like, what is she going to do? And she looked at them and she said, Denzel, you're all about the revolution. She turned into a Southern Baptist preacher somehow. I don't know why. She said, you're all about the revolution. But Beck, you're saying you can have your baby and go to work as well. And then she turned into someone else. She just kept doing impersonations of different cultures. And but Kelly, Kelly said this on The Voice, and I was like, oh. And later, Diana Ruvos, with an amazing voice. And if you want to see an impersonation of her later, ask my son Lockie. He does a great Diana Ruvos impersonation. And I don't know where he gets his dramatic flair from. But, um, but she's the best voice on the show, but clearly not getting the votes. And Kelly Rowland looks down the camera, and she says, Australian women, you have to vote for women. Indicating that we aren't supporting ourselves enough. Each other is what I meant to say, not ourselves. And talking to the husband of a woman who was a forerunner in our movement, took positions that no woman has ever taken, made this statement. He said, he said I'm all about the sisterhood, but I don't see many women about the sisterhood. He said that they seem to think that there's only room for one of them at the table. And so they're ambitious and they're greedy and they're not opening the doors for other women. I am. I was like, oh, ouch. And you know why I was ouch? Because I recognise that scarcity mentality in myself. I recognise that, that sometimes I see that there's only one place. So if I open the door for someone else to go there, then that means that I miss out. Let's not let that indictment rest on us because it's time. We have been granted permission and when we understand that and then can grant other women permission, let's fling wide the gates to say, come on, let's do this. You, you want to stay home and raise your babies and, and serve your family and make that the safest place on earth? I applaud you. You legend, go for it. You want to go to work and have your baby too? I applaud you. Good work, go for it. Can we please grant each other permission to go into the God calling that he has called us to? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's occupy. And here comes in my last moments the position of paradox. Because if permission is granted and we now hold, we're able to walk in a position of paradox. Look at that woman standing tall. Mum, this is how you always wanted me to stand, isn't it? When the book's on our heads down the hallway. You could never have foreseen that I'd be the tallest person in my year and so I had to stand like this. Yeah. <laughs> And um, we stand tall in our position. We take our place. We own the space that God has given us. We stand tall. But we only stand tall not to get noticed, but to serve other people. We stand tall in order that we can stoop low. But then at the same time, we have to fight. We have to fight. We don't fight men. They're not the enemy. They're our co-vice regents that are struggling with the curse every bit as much as we are. We need to pray for our men, for them to take their place, for them to rise up as well, for them to be so full of the power of God. We need to pray for them and declare life over them and believe in them and serve them and teach our boys to serve their wives and teach our girls to serve their husbands, teach everybody to serve everybody. I don't know what's happening. I'm so sorry. <laughs> 
Men are not the enemy. And sisters, we are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. <laughs> Opposition will come. We need to be prepared to fight. I just want to share a little bit of my story. 14 years is my story of being a woman in leadership. Started out believing that a woman couldn't be in ministry. Then moved on from that and believed that a woman couldn't preach. Then moved on that from that and believed that a woman couldn't lead. And then had this Margaret Stunt actually came to shine. And that woman carries a spiritual authority that no one can argue with. And I said to her, how do you reconcile all this? Because I've got this voice in my head that's telling me that it's not okay for me to be preaching. And she gave me a book to read. And I had a revelation, but it was a revelation inside of an environmental construct. And so I had to start to just fight a little bit. I forgot to stop fighting <laughs> when other people had the revelation as well. I thought that I had to keep grasping. And you know that's a definition of usurping? Jacob was called the usurper. And I've often wondered, why on earth would his parents call him usurper when they know how important names are in the Old Testament? Not that they knew they were in the Old Testament, but still. But, but usurping literally means, it's a, the picture is grabbing another person's heel. And Jacob came out of the womb grabbing his brother's heel. Now, they were calling him usurper because that was what happened in the physical. And it's the same for us. If we grasp, we're going to grab someone's heel in order to pull ourselves up. And in order to pull ourselves up, we're going to be pulling somebody else down. And that is not the way God wants us to fight. He wants us to stand tall. He wants us to stoop low. And so, more recently, as this has just been constant in my life, um, I decided I felt that God asked me to nominate for what our national executive for ACC. And uh, that's a big deal. I don't go for anything unless I know I'm going to win. And I knew that it was a very low possibility. No one knows me in, well, in, in New South Wales, I do, but not in the nation. I thought, well, God, I've heard from you. I've got to do this anyway. And so I was the only woman in our nation standing on a platform with men of mega churches. And honestly, I know, because I said later, people like Bronwyn who? <laughs> Your nation? No, <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> and um, and I, didn't, I didn't get on the national executive. So I had to front up to my seat the next day. My friend Tam reminded me, do you think maybe they're wondering why you're still there? Um, <laughs> but she was joking. <laughs> she was, I thought it was funny. Ha, ha, ha. Good one, Tam. <laughs> didn't mean to put you in that. <laughs> but um, so I had to keep fronting up. That was all fine. Blow to the ego, let's face it. You know, ouch. <laughs> Yeah, oh, bad luck, Bron, yeah, don't know what to say. And, um, but then I went to my friend's wedding uh, and then I went to Port Macquarie to do a race um, that our church does every year for Try Freedom for A21. And I was out in the water and I was pumped. I was psyched. I'd been training. I was ready to go to swim this 2Ks. And um, the water was a little bit cold, but I hit that water and I couldn't breathe. And I've never had a panic attack before, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And I had to count my strokes to 50. You don't count your strokes when you're doing a 2K race. You can't count that far. But I had to count my strokes to 50, and then I'd have to stop. I'd have to push myself to get to 50, and then I'd doggy paddle and count to 50 and just try and bring my breathing under control. And then I would count, and then I could only get to 40, and then I'd count to 50 again as I doggy paddled. And it was a long, long race doing that. 
And in my ear, the whole time was this voice saying, oh, this is who you are now. You're a panicky person. You overreached. Everyone thinks you're an idiot. You overreached with National. And, uh, and now you're going to be a person who really hangs back in the shadows and you're not going to push yourself forward ever again. Now, I knew where that voice was coming from. I knew without a shadow of a doubt. But it's a long time to have that voice when you're out in the water and you can barely breathe. Now, without being too dramatic, I felt like it was an attempt on my life. It was certainly an attempt on my confidence. And so when stuff like that happens, because that is the enemy, we have to stand. We have to stand tall. We have to continue to stoop low to serve because He wants us out. But we need to keep going. And we need to follow Jesus through that garden. You know, He, on our behalf, went to the place of the press in Gethsemane, which is a place where they extracted olive oil from olive paste by pressing down a massive rock onto the olive paste and grinding that out until they could get the oil. That's what He was willing to go through for us. And that's what happens to us sometimes. Sometimes it's the enemy, but sometimes it's also God's divine hand squeezing us to get all the stuff out of us that He doesn't want there, to purify us, to make us stronger, to make us whole. The squeeze is not something to be despised. The squeeze is something that helps us run into the arms of Jesus and say, Jesus, if, if that's what you've got, I'll go through it. The enemy's not taking me out. And then just like Jesus, when he went through the press, he begged, I don't want to drink of this cup. But the cup was the result of the squeezing. He was ready to go through it. And that's the same as us. When God presses us, it's not time to run away. It's time to stand tall. And it's time to be willing because now we're ready to drink of the cup that he's ordained for us. And every time we do, Every time we do drink of that cup, we crush the serpent's head. Every time you go through the pressing, every time you go through the crushing, every time you drink of the cup, you crush the serpent's head another time. He wants to take you out, but He can't if we will just stay and stand in the presence of God. Ladies, let's come to our feet. Because it's time. It's time. This conference is a prophetic declaration that we aren't going to leave the same way that we came in, that we're going to stand taller than we've ever stood before, we're going to stoop lower than we've ever stooped before, because it's time for us to take on everything that God has for us. And in so doing, give your foot a big stamp and crush that serpent's head. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring faith or a follower of Jesus, there is a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued, and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to northwestchurch.com.au. And thanks again for listening.